Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. So let's take it to the gram-negative bug. And well, how do you get resistance? So this is gonna be a more detailed view of a gram-negative bug right here, bacteria. And you can see the cell wall in the beginning, in the middle, the cell membrane above and below. And when we talk about how do gram-negative bugs get resistance, there are three main ways, three main ways. Number one, it's gonna be pore mutations. So when we talk about these pores, these are gonna be like these channels where simple diffusion can occur and these red dots are antibiotics. So if you have a lot of pores, porins, then your antibiotics get to go inside the cytoplasm and look at this, there's nothing in there but what? Just ribosomes. So you antibiotics to come in. So what do bacteria do, gram-negative bacteria? they have mutations to lose the porin so antibiotics can't get in. What's the second way you can do it? Right here, there's beta-lactamases and it's right there in that cell wall. So when a beta-lactam drug comes in, these beta-lactamases destroy the drug. What's the third way we can do that is gonna be these efflux pumps, the third way you can get resistance. So what do these pumps do? Just like it says, E stands for exit. So when the antibiotic is in, these efflux pumps will pump out all the antibiotic. So how do bacteria develop resistance? They have overexpression of these efflux pumps. So immediately when the antibiotic comes in, it gets pumped out. So when we talk about, you know, what's going to be a great medication antibiotic for a gram negative, you want to address a lot of these. So when we talk about terminology, like in this uh, vignette, ESBL, CRE, what do these things mean? So ESBL stands for extended spectrum beta-lactamases. And really to kind of simplify it for the boards and clinical, just means you're really resistant to what? Cephalosporins. When we talk about carbapenem resistant in Terabaceae, that's gonna be CRE. Well, there are different, two main ways to get CRE as far as genetics. You know, one of the main ways is you have KPCs, that sounds to, Klebsiella pneumoniae carbipenemase. And that's about almost 90 plus percent here in the States. But if you go overseas or say in Asia, the way they have it will be through these things called the metalloproteinases, something that we refer to as the New Delhi strain. But in the United States, we definitely worry about KPCs, which is how they get res- this uh, carbipenem resistant in Terabasiae. So the last thing I wanted to mention is this thing's called plasmids. Now, just to mention, when we talk about plasmid, that it's an area that contains DNA separate of the main DNA of the bacteria. And this DNA can actually be uh, translated into protein. And these plasmids, you know, in gram-negative such as Pseudomonas can definitely uh, have a mutation cause another mutation called the AMP-C mutation, which is how Pseudomonas gets their beta-lactamases. So as I mentioned already, CRE, largely because of these KPC producers. I mentioned already that in the US, greater than 90% of people have CRE as secondary to KPCs. And when we I wanted to mention, so if you have someone that has ESBL or KPCs, well, why are we only focusing on, you know, 
beta-lactam medications. Well, there are other medications we can use, and let me just mention it, aminoglycosides, you know what I mean, or polymyxins. And do we commonly use those drugs in the ICU? Are those the right answer on the boards? Probably not, and the main reasons why toxicity. So there are other options there, but they have so many toxicities. We don't use polymyxins. We don't use aminoglycosides when we talk about these gram-negative uh, bacteria. So really, after all this, what does it really come down to so you get the right answer on the boards? So when we talk about what are the answer choices, what is septolazine, tazobactam, cervaxia? They got the FDA approval for pseudomonas. It's a great anti-pseudomonal drug. It works on what? the porn mutations, the efflux pumps, the beta-lactamases, and it got FDA approval for pseudomonas in the urine, abdomen, and lung. Now, when we talk about meropenem vabobactam, uh, vabomir, which was one of the other choices there, it actually got the FDA approval for CRE, secondary to KPCs, doesn't, make, doesn't surprise me because that's the majority of what we see for CRE in the US. And it got the FDA approval for UTIs and pyelonephritis, but when you read the labeling, but not for pseudomonas, but not for pseudomonas. And we'll talk about that in one second. And then we have another thing that I put it here because many people ask me about this, something called ceftazidine, which is a third generation cephalosporin that already covers pseudomonas combined with avibactam, and we call that Avacast. And this got the FDA approval for ESBL and CRE of the urine abdomen and lung. It definitely covers pseudomonas, but probably not going to be the big gun pseudomonas compared to Cervaxa. So it really comes down to Cervaxa, pseudomonas, Nabomir, CRE in the urine, not secondary to pseudomonas, and Avacaz, you definitely could think about it for CRE and ESBL. It does have a little overlap with everything, including pseudomonas. So back to the question there was a question there so in this person that came in we're not going to read the question again has all these risk factors what is the right answer and i wish i could just look at you i wish you could just send me the right answer but the right answer is going to be what yeah septericol it's going to be d so let's work uh talk about why it's not going to be the other ones and let's talk about why uh, septericol is going to be the correct answer. So when we talk about Zosin right off the bat, let me just kind of break this down before we go to my teaching slides. Now, Zosin is not going to be the drug of choice for ESBL. It's not going to be the drug of choice for CRE. So going to be the wrong answer. Um, Zerbaxa definitely covers pseudomonas extremely well, but Zerbaxa is not FDA approved for, you know, CRE, which is what we were worried about here, because this patient was meropenem resistant, so already taken off. Meropenem and uh, vabobactam, well, definitely covers CRE, but it covers CRE secondary to what? KPCs. Definitely doesn't cover CRE secondary to things that you can get in Asia, like what? That New Delhi strain, and that's where the epidemiology kicked in. Also, this patient already grew pseudomonas, and what did I say? That Vabomir, when it got the FDA approval for uh, gram-negatives in the urine, it really covers uh, E. coli, Klebsiella, but doesn't cover what? Pseudomonas. And it's weird because everyone's going to say, Meropenem covers Pseudomonas, and it really does. And it just so happened that Vabobactam didn't make Meropenem a better anti-pseudomonal 
uh, antibiotic. So it just didn't get approval for Pseudomonas when we talk about um, in the urine. So not going to be C. E is going to be the wrong answer. We're not talking about gram positive. So by process of elimination, what is this septericol? So <laughs> let's talk about that. So I already mentioned why, uh, what do we think about in this patient who has this complicated obstructive uropathy. So of course, you, you definitely want to, you know, address the hydrolymphosis, address the stone, address the obstruction. And, you know, this, uh, you want to choose an antimicrobial that really can have addressed many of these resistant mechanisms that we talked about already. So when we talk about beta-lactams, I mentioned already that they will all bind to these penicillin binding proteins. But what are some things that happen first is that they get to go through these porins. They mentioned many of these gram negatives could have these porin mutations, less pores, less can the bacteria here in the right, these red dots can freely diffuse in. So when we talk about these pores where bacteria can diffuse in, I wanted to mention that there's another type of entry system in bacterial cell walls that's somewhat similar to these porins, it's an iron transport system. And yes, bacteria need iron. So when we talk about, and why do they need iron? To grow and everything. So what happens is that there are these iron transport systems that use you know, more of an, an active transport and bacteria actually secretes these compounds called siderospores. Bacteria naturally do that. What does is, what is the siderospores do? They chelate all the iron out there and bring it back in to the bacteria. So what it would cephtericol do is that it kind of mimicked, uh, it takes a cephalosporin and attached it to something that mimics these siderospores. So what happens is, is that cephtericol is going to be the cephalosporin antibiotic. It's attached to this kind of iron binding siderospore like moiety. It will bind all the iron. And what does the bacteria want to do is bring it inside. But of course, what's attached to this iron binding, you know, site is the antibiotic, septer called the cephalosporin. So they call this kind of like a, a Trojan horse <laughs> effect to do the killing. So when we talk about septericol, you know, it actually is very stable in the presence of beta lactamases, including KPCs in the New Delhi strain. When we talk about CREs, um, it definitely can, uh, is good for ESBL. It definitely covers pseudomonas. So of the choices here, based on what we're talking about, the best drug for this patient right here was septericol. And as I mentioned already, why Zerbaxa wasn't the answer was because of the fact that um, Zerbaxa does not cover CRE. Why do we use Vomir uh, is the fact that we're thinking about Pseudomonas and the New Delhi strain because they're in Asia and you're not going to get coverage over there. So this was actually one of the questions or a variation of it that definitely will appear on your board exams. And as you can tell, I really wanted to spend a big chunk of time talking about this because I don't know about you, but it gets really confusing when we talk about all these newer, you know, beta-lactam, beta-lactamase combination drugs out there for those resistant gram-negative bugs. So let's move on to the next question. So we have a 26-year-old woman is evaluated for muscle weakness developing over the past several months. She has no focal symptoms and states that she's 
she otherwise feels well. Medical history is unremarkable and there is no pertinent family history. She takes no meds. On exam, BP is on the lower side, heart rate of 98, respiratory rate of 16, and BMI is 19. There is no lower extremity edema and the remainder of the examination is unremarkable. All right, so they gave us some serum electrolytes, they gave us some urine electrolytes. And I gotta tell you, on your boards, if they give you some urine electrolytes, you know they gotta be important because all of us, we love the serum. But the minute we start talking about urine stuff, I don't know, normal values get a little iffy and it, everyone gets a little kind of panicky, but let's see what the question is. So in this case, um, sodium looks great, potassium on the lower side. And that kind of relates to, you know, in this patient, muscle weakness, you know, hypokalemia. Um, quite a little bit elevated, but look at that bicarb. That bicarb is definitely what? Low. So just looking at the serum electrolytes, patient per se probably has a metabolic, that's right, acidosis. And, you know, you know and I know, anytime you have a metabolic acidosis, what is the next best thing to calculate to categorize your differential diagnosis? Yeah. You got it, the anion gap, and you definitely have enough to calculate the gap. So does this patient have a, um, a anion gap metabolic acidosis? 142 minus 120 minus 15, the answer is no, not even close. So there's a non-gap metabolic acidosis, and there's some urine electrolytes. We got some sodium, potassium chloride, the urine pH, and they did a dipstick, and for what it's worth, there was no protein that was noted there and no blood. So what is the question? Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's acid base and electrolyte abnormalities? So once again, what did this patient have, everyone? Yeah, uh, a non-GAP metabolic acidosis. And there are a lot of choices over here. So let's kind of go th through these and kind of pick it together. So is bulimia nervosa going to be the right answer, everyone? You know, I would say no based on the nervosa part. What does nervosa mean clinically? Patients are probably doing a lot of what? Yeah, vomiting. And it's a horrible disease. I wish it on no one. But if you're doing a lot of vomiting, everyone, what type of um, acid-based abnormality do you think you might get? Yeah, 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 I agree. You'll probably get a metabolic alkalosis. So that bicarb is going to be a lot on the higher side. So I wouldn't pick that. Uh, oh my, what is this? Gittleman syndrome? Yeah, I went there. I'm sorry. So there's Barter syndrome and Gittleman syndrome. Oh boy. And if you have some of these syndromes, they're rare, but what type of acid-based abnormality would you probably get, you know? And I believe a Gittleman syndrome is like being on lots and lots of what? Thiazide diuretics. So if you're on lots of diuresis, you're diuresing all the time, you'll probably develop a metabolic yeah, alkalosis, I agree. So it doesn't really fit there, you know what I mean? Um, laxative abuse, that's gonna be a lot of diarrhea. Yeah, I could, I could buy that, that'll give you a metabolic acidosis. Um, using a lot of diuretics, that sounds very similar to one of these Barter's or Gittleman's syndrome. So if that occurs, you'll probably develop a metabolic, yeah, alkalosis. And E, RTA, renal tubular acidosis, well, sure, you'll definitely have a non-gap metabolic acidosis then. So it really comes down to if I'm in a hurry, and this is the question on the boards, is it going to be C or E? So, hey, everyone, how are you going to decide what's going to be the right answer for the critical care boards? Well, you know what we didn't really look at too much is the 
urine electrolytes. And when you have a non-GAP metabolic acidosis, why do they put this question here? It's because on the boards, you know, the test writers know you folks are amazing when it comes to anion-GAP metabolic acidosis. Everyone has some kind of acronym, some kind of mud piles out there that they use to say methanol and ethanol and DKA and lactic acidosis. So, you know, I think that's going to be one of, they will ask you one, but they really want to squeeze in one of those non-gaps in there so you can figure out what's the next step. So the next step to figure out what's going to be the broad differential for a non-gap metabolic acidosis is calculating the urine anion gap. So how do you do that? Well, it's going to be the sodium plus the potassium minus the chloride of all things. So if I take the sodium plus the potassium, that looks like it's going to be 26 minus the chloride, which is 32. Well, I'm really not going to hyper-focus on the number. I really just want to know if the urine anion gap is going to be one of two things. Is it either going to be positive or is it going to be negative? And so if it's going to be negative, well, it pretty much tells me that the kidneys are working well and they're doing its job. So the problem is probably going to be some kind of GI source. Well, if the urine anion gap is going to be positive, it kind of tells me the kidneys are just not doing its job. Maybe they're a little damaged. So it's probably going to be a kidney problem. And what kidney problem jumps to mind? It's probably going to be some of these RTAs. So when we talk about this urine anion gap, it's negative. So by default, the answer here is going to be what? C. But why did I put this here? I think m many of you got this correct. I really wanted to talk about, hey, why are we talking about the urine anion gap? Or what are we talking about this chloride? So remember, when we talk about metabolic acidosis, of course, you know, we want to actually, compensation's gonna occur. Of course, our lungs are definitely gonna do a respiratory alkalosis, but the kidneys itself want to correct it. And how can the kidneys correct the metabolic acidosis? Well, they can do it in two ways. Number one, the proximal tubule, that's where you do a lot of reabsorption. And trust me, what are you gonna to wanna to reabsorb in the proximal Bicarb, because you have a metabolic what? Acidosis. Another way to like, you know, help balance things out is gonna be in the distal tubule. And when we talk about the distal tubule and how, what is the kidney gonna do is they're probably gonna be dumping out hydrogen ion. And when we talk about dumping out hydrogen ion in the distal tubule, well, there are two ways we could dump out hydrogen ion. We could do it through what we call these titratable and non-titratable acids. And the most common is gonna be these non-titratable. The most common of these non-titratable acids is ammonia. So ammonia is NH3, it combined with hydrogen ion to make ammonium, which is NH4, and that ammonium gets dumped where? In the urine, if the kidneys are doing their job. Now, let me ask you this, everyone. Who has actually ordered a urine ammonium level? The answer is, I haven't. I don't know if you have, but it's just not very common. So we can't really use urine ammonium to figure out the etiology of this non-GAP metabolic acidosis, so instead we use urine chloride. So why urine chloride is because, you know, urine ammonium, NH4, has a positive charge to it. So something needs to bind to it when it gets dumped in the urine. So urine chloride is part of those urine electrolytes, so very commonly ordered. So it's kind of a surrogate marker for urine ammonium. So let's play the game. Someone comes in and they have lots and lots and lots of diarrhea. They have a non-GAP metabolic acidosis, 
what is the kidney going to do if they're functioning properly? They're going to start dumping out, you know, ammonium, and therefore chloride will be bound to the ammonium. You're going to have a lot of chloride in the urine. So when you do the formula for the urine anion gap, urine sodium plus the urine potassium minus a huge urine chloride, the urine anion gap is going to be what? Negative. So it means that the GI tract is probably the etiology. And of course, we always could say when the urine anion gap is negative, always think about GI tract diarrhea. And of course, on the other side of things, you know, if the urine anion gap is positive, well, you think about RTAs. And of course, RTAs are always going to be such a headache because how many RTAs are there? There's three. The first one is what? Type one, which is distal, which makes no sense. Type two is what? Proximal. There's no type three. Then there's type four, which has nothing to do with the tubule. It deals with the hormone. Which hormone is that? Aldosterone. <laughs> so it does get a little confusing there, but I think it's important to know what's the role of the urine anion gap in these cases. So I put the formula here just one more time, and we went through all the reasoning why uh, we use the urine chloride as a surrogate marker for urine ammonium. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.